up on today's show, vaccine passports. They're coming, especially around travel. What do we need to be very careful of? A new jobs program introduced by the province. We'll chat with the Labour and Immigration Minister. And zombie fires. A lot of study being put into these fires that burn in the peat underground and can last right through the winter and come back in the spring. Talking about vaccine passports for travel and uh, what that's going to look like, I don't think there's any doubt that we're going to see that become a pretty commonplace thing. And a number of you text me saying, hey, I mean, this isn't really new. Uh, This listener says you need a yellow fever vaccine card in your passport to travel to many countries, and it's been that way for years. Yes, absolutely. You need proof of vaccination to travel to a lot of different places for a lot of different things. But I think the difference here is it's going to be far more widespread. It's going to be far more commonplace. Um, and it'll probably apply to most countries, if not all countries. The EU saying that you can travel there this summer if you have proof of vaccination. So uh, vaccine passports is what we're talking about here. And joining us to share some thoughts on this is Benjamin Muller, who is a professor of political science and sociology at Western University, joining us to talk a bit about this situation. Uh, Professor, thanks for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, when we take to take a look at this, uh, I think for a lot of people it's concerning, it's it's troubling, there are some issues around it that they, they want answers on. Um, it's interesting, in the piece you recently wrote, you draw some comparisons to what we did following 9-11 and the way we changed travel and security and what we have to do in order to get on an airplane, and just how some of that went too far. And you're saying we could see some parallels with vaccine passports, right? Yeah, I think uh, there's a variety of ways that the comparison makes sense. I mean, one is which that, you know, all of us are eager to travel again. And I think there's a lot of similarities after 9-11. People wanted to kind of return to, quote unquote, normal. And in doing so, I think we were willing to overlook or not participate as actively um, as publics in the application and use of these new technologies that then have had kind of a broad array of ramifications, many of which, you know, we didn't foresee and and in some cases aren't happy with. And I think there's a lot of parallels to what we see happening now. And that is a risk with this kind of technology, right? I mean, once you open the door and get it started, you the limits can't be that clearly defined. And, and like you say, it can end up, you know, into an area of overreach. Like it just continues to grow and affect things more than we'd expected it would. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, it's it's common at the time after 9-11, you know, when I was researching biometrics, many folks said, whatever, I've provided fingerprints for mm-hmm. documentation. How is this different? Same kind of analogy now with things to do with documents that um, we keep in our passport, a piece of paper that shows we've been inoculated for something. But that's distinctly different than digital information. It's quite likely that what we're going to see is some sort of app on our mobile yeah. phones that's going to contain this information. And the ability to transfer and share our personal data is very different under those circumstances than when we're holding a piece of paper. Yeah, so what are the concerns around that? Because you're right, it will be technology-based, and I think, you know, smartphone is typically how we do most things these days. So so what are your concerns around, you know, the difference between that and just having a piece of paper that you produce? Why is that more of a concern? Yeah, I, I think one of them, you know, relates uh, to to my co-author, Dr. Cook, a lot of his work looking at in terms of the development of the apps themselves. Uh, there is uh, concerns around that and, and gets a little technical things called APIs, which are application programming interfaces. Basically, what when someone wants to develop an app, they kind of go to this toolbox that's effectively created by Google and Apple 
for people to develop them. And, and these things are basically not neutral. They're designed to kind of continually try and grab more data and more information as the app functions. And so, I mean, that's one side. The other side is, I think, things we're already aware of. So, you know, I was reminded of a story from uh, almost 10 years ago now where a woman tried to leave Toronto Airport to the United States to get on a cruise, and she was denied entry on the basis of being uh, admitted to a mental facility a year prior. And, you know, this, you know, we asked, how did this happen? Well, it happened because we have data sharing agreements with other countries and the extent to which those exist, how much of our personal data is shared with other nations is often not known to us. And we will need those kinds of agreements, both in terms of private and public when these apps are going to operate. And so I think that's a, a serious kind of whole bundle of questions about where the information's going and how it's being gathered. Yeah, and those privacy concerns are overarching. And I think you're right. You know, are, are we assuming that governments will be the ones handling this? It won't be a private firm that's going to come up with these passports. It'll have to be something government-based. Does that make any difference? Well, I, I think to some extent... We, we should probably all recognize that that's simply not going to be the case, that the government may back something and say, yeah. this is the platform we're going to use, but that is going to be developed privately. That's going to be developed either by uh, a large tech corporation or actually more likely by a series of individuals who are kind of working collaboratively through things like GitHub and so on to develop the apps that will use this. That's the sort of story we saw with the uh, with the contact tracing apps. And so I think we'll see something similar here. And when we talk about, I mean, just the obvious barrier, not everybody has a smartphone, Benjamin. I mean, there are people that don't. We just got a text from a listener saying, I can't afford the data on a smartphone. I mean, so are we sort of setting up I don't want to say a two-tier system, but you know what I mean? We're sort of discriminating against some people. We're making it harder for some people and easier for others. There's, we're not all on an equal playing field here. Yeah, I think, again, that's a, where there's a telling comparison to what happened after 9-11. The rollout of these technologies um, in terms of biometrics and other forms of surveillance and identification technologies, they weren't um, uniformly applied, yeah. nor were they uniformly accessible to all people. And so, you know, you want to pass into the United States um, more readily and quickly along the border, well, you enroll in something like Nexus. Mm -hmm. But there's costs involved, there's technology, there's time commitments, and you're exposing more of your personal privacy. So I think the story is the same here. Uh, and a story we've seen during COVID quite a bit, that it seems to amplify uh, inequities more than anything else. I think it's inevitable we're going to get there. We're going to have these things. It's going to be a, a qualifier for traveling for a lot of people. What's what's a better way of doing it? Is there a way that will, you know, make it check all of the boxes and still not have some of these issues you're concerned about? Yeah, I, I think, like, I would agree with you. There's an extent to which this is a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Um, we want to travel. We know there's going to be a requirement for some kind of tool. I think my concern, and again, the 9-11 and, and post 9-11 example is in my mind here that it happens so quickly, the public is not involved in the conversation and the amount of oversight, um, even from institutions um, like our, our, our privacy institutions that exist um, in Canada at the provincial and federal level, uh, tend not to be as involved in this as we'd like to see because of the quest to get it faster so that we can all just get on our way. Yeah, we'll, we'll give up a little uh, of 
you know, our privacy and our security and things like that in, in the name of convenience. And we could be hurtling right towards that again. Yeah, I think that's the thing that that unfortunately, I would say false trade off often yeah. gets presented to us rather than thinking that this could, in fact, be something that enhances privacy. Um, there's no reason why that can't be the case, but it's often not the case. Yeah, exactly. Interesting discussion. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Benjamin. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This week, the province finally released their long-awaited jobs program for post-pandemic Alberta, the start of it anyway. The federal government offered up close to $200 million in funding that the province could use under a cost-sharing job creation plan. That money was offered a while ago. Uh, with the condition that the province spend 80% of it by April 1st. The UCP government didn't do that, but they were able to renegotiate with the feds and have the money kept on the table into this fiscal year. And now we know how it will be spent and uh, what the plan looks like. So to get a little more information about what was announced this week, we have Jason Copping, who is the Labour and Immigration Minister, joining us this morning. Um, Minister Copping, thank you for joining us today. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me there, Shay. So let's just go through the uh, the program that was announced. Jobs Now is what it's called. And essentially, um, 25% of the wages would be covered for new hires, right? Is it that simple? It, almost. It's the, uh, it's as you said before, it's $370 million program, one of the largest programs, training programs in Alberta's history. And, uh, and employers, both businesses and not-for-profits, can apply to get a wage training or both subsidy okay. up to 25% of the job to a maximum of $25,000. And the Premier says he expects that up to 22,000 jobs could be created as part of this program? Yeah, we, we're estimating more than 22,000 jobs, uh, direct jobs can be created. And that doesn't include spinoff uh, benefits because we're injecting more money into the economy, creating more jobs, uh, which will cre- also increase demand for other services and potentially to uh, more job creation as well. Um, now, you say that you know companies and nonprofits can apply. Is it one per company and nonprofit, or is there a limit to how many people they can um, access this program and bring on? Yeah, so there there is a limit. Uh, we're doing this through a series of intakes. Uh, the first intake uh, started yesterday uh, yeah. and will go till the till the end of August. Uh, and for uh, uh, employers, it's a maximum of 20 jobs per intake. Uh, and the reason why we're doing separate intakes because we understand that uh, different sectors of the economy will will recover at different points in times. And so we wanted to to um, spread the money out over a period of time, so uh, companies can and organizations, uh, depending on their uh, their business cycles, can apply for it. Because really, this is about creating long-term permanent positions. Uh, part a key part of the program is that. Uh, 
businesses have to make a commitment to hire uh, the, an individual and keep the job for at least one year. Uh, and the way that the payment uh, cycle works is that, you know, uh, someone applies, or uh, organization applies, they get approved, they then post a job, hire somebody. At the three-month mark, they get half the money of the subsidy. And then at the, uh, the 12-month mark, they get the other half. Because really what this is designed is to incent uh, the creation of long-term permanent positions. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and it can actually be increased to 37.5% if uh, a person with disabilities is hired, right? So there's, there's an added element there. Yes, no, that's very correct. That's correct. Uh, and we recognize that, you know, uh, those with disabilities have additional barriers uh, to getting to work. Uh, and we want this program to work for all Albertans. And as you know, some was depending on the barrier, uh, sometimes uh, employers may have to make a, you know, either do additional training, mm-hmm. uh, make investments in terms of the, uh, whether it be the type of software or the accessibility to, uh, uh, to the, either the work site or the, uh, the workstation. Uh, there can be additional costs. So, you know, uh, we added this element to the program, and quite frankly, because we want to get all Albertans back to work. The question uh, a lot of people are asking is why it took so long. I mean, the program has been on the table for quite some time. Why did the province wait until, uh, you know, the end of May to bring it in? I mean, the original deadline was April 1st. Why the hesitation? So a couple, a couple of things. So first off, we wanted to design a program that focused on the creation of long-term jobs. Uh, to do that, we needed flexibility from the federal government to be able to roll the the $185 million, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, into this fiscal year. Uh, and and even though we had ongoing, continuing, positive conversations with them, uh, they had their own internal process to get through. And, and quite frankly, they couldn't, they couldn't get back to us to confirm their ability to do that till they launched their own budget. Uh, so that's, that's the first element. The second element is we wanted to also introduce this program coming out of the uh, out of the the pandemic, because uh, we recognize that you know when it, when we're dealing with the pandemic and you have uh, restrictions that uh, restrict economic activity, it could be challenging for some employers. So we also wanted to roll this out as part of our, our economic recovery plan. And so you know we got the answer from the uh, the federal government uh, just a, a number of weeks ago uh, that we could roll this in. Uh, that they finally got it through their process, uh, and then that gives us an opportunity to launch it right now and, and provide hope because as we're coming out of this pandemic, uh, we'll be seeing restrictions list, uh, being being lifted. You know, the vaccinations are, are, are high, and, they'll, and they're continuing to grow every day. Uh, we need to keep the work on that, and we also recognize it takes some time for employers to apply and uh, and then post the job and make the hire. Uh, so we wanted to make sure to time this as we're coming out of the pandemic to get the maximum value from the dollars because the reality is, uh, there's, you know, whether it's federal dollars or provincial dollars, uh, it's all the same taxpayer, and we want to use it to the most, uh, to the greatest effect. Uh, so that's why we did the timing this way, uh, be able to match a program designed for permanent long-term jobs and actually get the maximum impact in terms of growth as we're coming out of the pandemic. Um, just a question from some of our listeners, and it's kind of, you know, you're talking about they have to keep people on for a year, and I understand it because you want to create permanent long-term jobs, but one of our listeners says, I run a seasonal farm. Um, is there going to be a kind, another program that will help them? You know, they, they don't operate for a full year, so they don't need staff for a full year. I mean, I imagine this is just the first program of many. Like I say, it's about, it's about 10% of the unemployed Albertans right now. There needs to be more, correct? Yeah, so we're um, lining this up to work with some federal programs. As you know, the federal programs has a there's a wage subsidy uh, that's out there right now that ends in the fall. Um, the, the feds are also introducing another program uh, that it's basically a rehiring program. So as we come out of the pandemic, uh, and that's also a similar it's a, it's a wage subsidy uh, program to be able to help employers who had to lay off staff because of the pandemic and get them back up uh, back up to 
speed. So that's going to be through the summer and into the fall. And this is a longer term, uh, a longer term vision. And we've also, um, you know, we've done significant consultation with uh, the business community. Uh, as you know, at our announcement, we had the Alberta Chamber and the Edmonton and, and Calgary Chambers there with us. And we're doing this uh, program in a, a number of intakes. And one of the reasons for that is also allows us to tweak that. Sure. Uh, so as we hear feedback from the community about what works, what doesn't work, you know, how do we modify it um, so we can get the maximum benefit for this and uh, and to be able to provide uh, opportunities for all Albertans, we can make tweaks down the road. So we're, we're doing our first intake now and we're continuing to listen to feedback uh, from, uh, from employers. Um, well, I've got you. As Labour Minister, one thing that's been talked about a lot in our province recently is paid sick leave. We, we tell people they can't go to work, they have to stay home for two weeks at a time, things like that. Um, and, and a lot of places, they just they don't have access to paid sick leave. There's been a big push to have the government bring that in. Has there been any progress within the UCP cabinet around this issue? Is that something that people can expect, or are we just going to make it through to the end of the pandemic without actually making a change there? So we're watching. Um, we're watching it closely. Uh, we we have made changes already. Like initially, with the uh, when the pandemic started, we put in unpaid leave for people who had to self isolate. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people who also look after people who needed to uh, to self isolate dependents. Uh, the federal government came in with a uh, with a program to provide support, and we also have put in other additional supports on top of that. So if you if you have a worker who needs to self isolate but they can't self isolate at home, um, we provide benefits not only to be able to stay in a hotel, uh, but a, a additional financial supports um, uh, on top of that to be able to support that. So we're we're watching in terms of what what's happening in terms of the the spread and the uh, in the workplace. Uh, to see whether there's a need, and, and if there's a need, that's something we may we may need to adjust to. But what we're seeing right now is the numbers are coming down, uh, and the spread is coming down, and, and really our focus is on vaccinations, getting people vaccinated uh, so they can go to work with uh, and and have another layer of protection. On, on, in addition to all the other layers with the uh, health and safety um, and AHS and working with uh, employees and employers working together to reduce the spread in the work workplaces, vaccinations being rolled out at the workplaces, for example, in the meatpacking industry, we've done vaccinations on site. And we've also seen some of that in uh, some of the work camps, uh, as well as the um, rapid testing, be able to do that. So we have all these measures in place. We're continuing to watch it uh, and they'll see where we go from there. Okay. So right now there's no plans to introduce paid sick leave in Alberta. Um, other things seem to be working. That's, that, that's correct. Okay. Uh, Minister, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate the update on the Jobs Now program. Well, thanks so much for your time, and, and again, urge all, all uh, uh, listeners to uh, conti- you know, continue to get vaccinated, uh, follow the, uh, the measures by, uh, outlined by our Chief Medical Officer of Health, and then for employers to look at this Jobs Now program, they go to alberta.ca backslash jobs now uh, and see if it works for them and help not only grow their business, but get Albertans back to work. Excellent. Okay. Thank you, Minister. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Shay. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. That is Jason Copping, uh, the Labour and Immigration Minister. Zombie fires, the majority of wildfires uh, in our part of the world, they're typically traced back to just a couple of sources. We've got lightning and we've got human involvement. And and thanks to our seasons that we have around here, winter is usually enough to put them out once and for all, but not always. And researchers are doing a lot of work right now around something they're calling zombie fires in the northern part of the world and how they can be managed. Dr. Merit Turetsky is uh, the director of Arctic and Alpine Research at the University of Colorado who focuses on Northern Canadian Fires, and she joins us now. Uh, Dr. Turetsky, thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me on. Good morning to everyone. Uh, now, 
Zombie Fires is a pretty cool name. Uh, give us some idea exactly. What are we talking about? What is a zombie fire? A zombie fire. It is this spooky phenomenon. You know, we've actually known about zombie fires for decades, but we've been really limited in our understanding of what they are. So a zombie fire is a fire that, you know, it it burns in a, a fire season in the summer, maybe into the early fall. And then when winter hits, it actually goes underground. So it smolders in peat-rich soil. Canada has a lot of peat blanketing both peatlands and in forests. And those peat-rich layers can actually hold smoldering fires right underneath the snowpack, right through the winter. And then when spring hits, those fires can sometimes reemerge to the surface as a zombie fire. So it's a previous fire coming back to haunt burning in the next fire season. We also call these carryover fires or overwintering fires. And it's not new. This is something that's gone on, well, basically forever, right? We've known this is a phenomenon that's existed for some time. That's right. There's been much discussion in the fire community for decades about overwintering or zombie fires, but they're remote. They're hard to track. They're really hard to monitor. We've had northern community members send us photos of smoke diffusing through snowpacks. So we've known that these happen, but only based on anecdotal information. So a new study published this week developed a way to track and monitor zombie fires using satellite data, using remote sensing. So now we have a new method for actually being able to monitor these conditions across Canada. So moving forward with a changing climate, with more warming, uh, affecting fire regimes across Canada, we will have the ability scientifically to track and monitor these conditions. Okay, now how do you how do you track it? Like, If they're burning underground, like you say you saw smoke in some instances and things like that, anecdotal reporting. Um, using a satellite, if you can't see it, how, how do you know it's there? How do you actually track this and monitor it? Yeah, and this is why it was so difficult for us to do I this guess so. <laughs> uh, for decades. Um, so this team of researchers was able to put algorithms. So if you know a fire burned in that location in the summer or fall, and then you can detect that, uh, you know, that same location experiencing burning the subsequent spring, then we can attribute that spring ignition to a zombie fire condition. So it really takes that time series of remote sensing to piece this all together. Um, This work shows that these zombie fires happen in peat-rich areas. It is triggered by more severe burning. And these are exactly the kinds of conditions that we're worried about into the future because climate is changing here in Canada and around the rest of the boreal biome. We know that's affecting our our burning and our fire regimes. And so we're going to keep our eyes on zombie fires because this actually could increase into the future or so this new research search suggests. Um, first of all, how, how do they reignite? If they're burning underground, do they always reignite or is, are there some that just continue to smolder for years and years and years or do they always come back to the surface and create a new wildfire? Yeah, so that's, that I think we're still needing uh, to learn. So we know there's a lot of smoldering. You know, so smoldering is 
fascinating. You know, when people think about wildfires in Canada, they think about flames leaping up into the tree canopy. We certainly do have a lot of canopy fires here in Canada. But smoldering actually dominates most fires in the boreal biome. And it is flameless burning. It's slow consumption of fuels. It's the kind of burning that happens when you try to light a campfire with really wet fuels. It just kind of pitters away. It actually produces a lot of carbon monoxide, very inefficient burning. This is the stuff of zombie fires. (laughs) There's probably quite a number of zombie fires that just gets put out, you know, through uh, the spring. But when they do emerge, then they can start to trigger uh, additional flaming fires. And that's the interaction that we still need to learn about. Okay, so let's say we know there's a zombie fire there. We found it through our new tracking system, and we see this zombie fire, and we know that it has the potential to cause a problem. Is there anything we can do about it, or do we just have to wait and monitor it, or can we go and attack a zombie fire? I think we could. It is extremely laborious, however, to go attack a zombie fire. (laughs) It would really require physical presence of firefighters tamping that area down. So we know it's laborious. We want to get to the point where we only expend that labor where we think there's a threat of a zombie fire actually spreading the following spring. I don't think we're there yet in terms of the science, but that would be the future goal. Right now, we're just we want to sit back and monitor this. Um, we do know, based on this new research, that zombie fires, while eerie and mystical and cool, are very rare. So I don't think this is a big cause for concern right now. But we, the good news is we now have the tools where we can be, you know, keeping our eye on this condition. And if it does start to become more of a problem, yeah. maybe we can create some fire attack modes that would tamp that problem down. Now, now, Doc, you say they're very rare, but as we're chatting, I'm getting text messages from our listeners, and one is telling me about a fire that uh, has been burning east of Sherwood Park for 20 years. There's another listener saying there's one burning in Manitoba that's been burning for years. So just, you know, you, you're, you're tracking these and you're monitoring them. How, how many are actually burning in Alberta right now? Do you have any way of knowing Well, so right now, I don't know that we have strong evidence for zombie fires in Alberta. I have to admit, we're we're not really, our eyes right now are actually on the Russian Arctic, where we know zombie fires are influencing fire dynamics on the ground today. And this is burning in some of the world's most sensitive permafrost. So that is uh, diverting some attention. But of course, fires uh, in Western Canada right now um, are something that the, the community is monitoring. I do want to caution, though, because readers are, are, you know, your audience is, is messaging you about year, you know, years of burning. Yeah, yeah. That's probably not the same kind of fire condition as what we're talking about today. Okay. Fires that are burning for years and decades are actually probably more coal fires. Whole different phenomenon. Really, really important and interesting. Peat fires and these zombie fires are more ephemeral. They're more year-to-year burning. If it okay. goes on for longer than that, I think we're in a whole new ballgame. Something else is going on. That's not just a typical yeah. zombie peat fire. Gotcha. You know, peat, peat is, is baby coal, young coal. So these certainly are linked to yep. one another. But this new research is really dealing with fires 
that happen just from one year to the next. Well, what is it about peat? Does it just have lots of fuel? I mean, we've always been told you need you need a flame, you need oxygen, and you need fuel. I imagine there's not a lot of oxygen underground. So why do they manage? Why does it manage to burn so well through this peat? Yeah, so your recipe is for efficient burning, right? This yeah. more flame combustion. Smoldering is this entirely different set of physical processes that leads to burning of fuels, and it can happen under very wet fuel conditions, like in these peat layers. So peat is fuel. It's very organic, rich soil. It just happens to be pretty wet, pretty cold, so it's not going to support efficient burning, but it can support smoldering, and that's really the only reason why we see smoldering really persisting in these systems. The snow can actually protect smoldering underground. So it'll be really interesting in the future as we start to see more precipitation in the winter come down as rain, that might actually spell some relief for zombie fires Mm. because the snow can actually protect that smoldering by keeping the ground warm through the winter. So really interesting dynamics to keep our eyes out, and um, we we certainly will continue to research and monitor this um, because fire is so critical for the fate of the Canadian boreal forest. Amazing information. Thank you, Doc. I really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Merit Turetsky, who is the director of the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at the University of Colorado Boulder. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.